Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Apocalypse Now, the 1979 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by John Milius, Francis Ford Coppola, based loosely on the novel Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, joined by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So this is an entry in our new series of someone from the team picks a movie and forces everybody else to watch it. (laughs) And I picked this movie because, shockingly, several of the team members had not seen it. I'm not going to name names. And so the reason I picked Apocalypse Now, I have this very strange relationship with this movie. And I think it has everything to do with when I saw it and like the context in which I saw it. Mm -hmm. But it was around post high school, like, but pre college, like right in that, like, I'm becoming like a real person (laughs) phase. (laughs) And, you know, as a straight edge high school kid, I wasn't allowed to like watch R rated movies. So like, suddenly this new world opened up to me and my dad had always talked about this movie and he was really good at like telling like basically creating tall tales around things and so there was just this like weird built-up lore with this movie of it's this insane movie where the experience was just like actually being in the war and there was this documentary made about it but no one's can find it anymore doesn't exist and like all this so just like as a kid i'd heard about it and so there was this buildup of like apocalypse now uh-huh. and so i i don't remember exactly how it happened but some somewhere in college i was on you know the totally legal places that you go when you're downloading movies in college and i found like a, a grainy copy of the making of which is called hearts of darkness which we're gonna have to talk about and so i watched the movie and watch the movie again and then watch the making of and just like the experience of that and being exposed to something like this for the first time and then coupling that with the crazy making of story just left a, a very intense lasting but kind of vague and murky impression so going back and rewatching it it was interesting because i was like okay right because i don't remember a ton about what happens in the movie and even now just having watched it the other day I feel like I'm still kind of in this weird daze mm-hmm. of like, but what is this movie and what is this experience? And I think that's one of the things that's very unique about it. So I'm curious for those of us who are watching it for the first time, what your experience was for it. I'm not going to name names. I'm going to randomly <laughs> We're going to reveal call. ourselves. It's not a secret. Say. Yeah, it's not a secret. Right. <laughs> So anyone on the team that's watching it for the first time this week, what are your thoughts, Trisha? Michael, hold on. Michael, this is your chance to get back at us for all the times. I mean, sorry, get back at them for all the times they throw you under the bus for not. Revenge isn't my bag. That's just not what I'm into. Well, I, I have a little bit of a disclaimer on me on myself here because I... In a recent podcast, we got asked about, like, what are the big movies, uh, a a Patreon-exclusive podcast, we got asked about what are the, like, gaps in your, like, viewing history that you're really embarrassed about, like, what movies you haven't seen. And so I went through the AFI Top 100 list, and there's, like, three or four Vietnam War movies on that Mm -hmm. list, and I had seen exactly zero of them. Like, I just haven't seen the Vietnam War movies for whatever reason, um, and this is like, to me, always been the most glaring of like, so I've obviously also missed Platoon. 
you can yell at me about that. I also haven't seen Full Metal Jacket. Like, mm-hmm. so those, you know, those are the ones. I haven't seen The Deer Hunter either. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, it's that, right. it's that somehow perfect storm of like, I don't know, <laughs> Vietnam War movies. Um, but I was really glad that you picked this one because I've been meaning to see it. Although when I watched it over the weekend, I was sick. I had like a stomach flu, which I I do I do not perfect. recommend. It's <laughs> <laughs> it seems weirdly perfect. It was so nightmarish, like phantasmagorical, just like hell that I was in. <laughs> I made it about as far as like Ride of the Valkyries, and then I was like, I gotta go lie down. This is <laughs> too too much. Do not recommend. But it's astonishing. I mean, I was blown away just by. The, how it looks and the scale of the production and um how yeah just the vast um cinematography and the landscape and the commitment to the like commitment to every single tiny part of it um it it just blows you away when you're looking at just even what's in like any given frame and how amazing it looks just like it's never going to be like probably one of my favorite movies because it's not that fun to watch. And I also had this <laughs> horrible experience watching it, but I just respect the hell out of it. It's incredible. There's like an audacity to yeah. like every it's single so audacious. Like, what did you just do, Coppola? Like, right. Over the course of, you know, nearly a year, uh, basically. But Alex, what did you think? Say, yeah, similar experience. I, um, I'm really happy that I, I watched it. At, I'm I'm actually currently staying at my family's house in Arizona, but they just got a gigantic OLED TV, Ooh. OLED TV, and like I brought my nice speakers from LA <laughs> to install here as wow. surround sound because I live in an apartment and we can't play things really loud anyway. So I watched it with like super loud, like subwoofer surround sound, <laughs> on a giant 4K Perfect. screen, and Apple TV has it in 4K, nice. like Dolby Vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it yeah i was it was like a movie theater experience which, which i think is how like yeah. you should watch this movie and i was so blown away especially by like just the sound like yeah yeah the sound of the chopper is right up front i was already like oh i'm in for like a cinematic just journey here and by the end i i feel like i was in an altered state yes. like i, I really it felt does that like, to you i i really felt like the movie had taken me into like a fever dream and mm-hmm. I didn't know where I was, but it was, I still, I trusted it. I felt like I was in good hands. And so I was along for this ride. And I, I feel like I, I should have watched it more than once. Like I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I can even process it properly mm-hmm. upon a first viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just know, yeah, there was so much in there. And yeah, and some of those set pieces is <laughs> early Unreal. on in the film. I'm like, wait a minute. Like they, had to actually do all this yeah what Wait, they did all this i don't mm-hmm. understand you can do that what <laughs> yeah. that was i was consistently thinking that as i was watching it like what they did this <laughs> what <laughs> it's crazy i mean and that's the thing when you watch the documentary which i was still sick when i was <laughs> it was the next day but i was not feeling well and as i'm watching the documentary relating so hard to everybody in it where i'm just like me too you guys but <laughs> it it is just you see you know the famous quote by coppola which was like we had access to too much money we were in the jungle and little by little we went mad you get that feeling when you right. watch it it drives yeah. you crazy there is a weird i want to hear your thoughts brian but just since we're talking about the the going crazy thing there is this weird kind of phenomenon it seems that happened within this like 10 year period where 
Apocalypse Now and Blade Runner and The Shining are kind of all these mm, like yeah. landmark movies where the production was just as insane as the movie. And yeah. like those are so mixed together that they're kind of you, you can't pull them apart. Mm-hmm. It's like energetically imprinted on the film, like the mood right. of the set and like the weirdness of it all. You know, there's yeah. something that got transferred. Yeah, I didn't realize how publicized every bit of this production was where people were like following along with the production. That's that's one of the most different things from then to now is like you don't you don't turn on like the six o'clock news and they're like, oh, you know, production on uh, Black Widow got da da da. And, you know, like they're not doing like a piece on it with like Tom Brokaw coming on and like seriously, (laughs) like sternly talking about the production of a film. Yeah. But so, Brian, you had seen it before, right? I had, but only once and quite a long time ago. So it was really, really a treat to go back and watch it with fresh eyes and really like I know where this movie is going, but I can just sort of sit and and enjoy each little piece of it as it was going along. And I just I just found myself just blown away, like even for a movie I had seen before, just every every explosion and choreographed helicopter and everything but then also just the the individual moments the acting the characters the story Mm -hmm. the the theme obviously and just everywhere it goes you know it's a two and a half hour movie and i was just completely just with it the entire time uh and and yeah so i was really really excited to go back and watch it again yeah, we when we make epics these days, you know, where the whole crew travels to like some foreign location, like think about like Lawrence of Arabia and stuff like this, these mm-hmm. epics. When we make them these days, they don't have this sense of scale that movies from around this time do that are like so immersed. I feel like these days when we think about epics, it's like half of it is CGI and like it's pieced together in these different locations. And mm-hmm. so what we're talking about the the like texture or the the mental state and and part of the reason of course in this case is that there was just so many drugs being done on set constantly but like right. notoriously <laughs> but but that stuff when when you um put your entire crew like send them to a foreign country and leave them there for nearly a year it like they're the entire spirit of that like seeps into what feels like the scale and the psychology and just like every other part. And also, of course, they built all of those huge sets. Like you get the sense of the work that's being like poured into it. And I don't know, it somehow comes through and it, epic is that word for it. Mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of times when you hear these stories about a director put too much of themselves in the movie, they tried to make it too personal. They then the movie ends up not being good. And I mm-hmm. think that Coppola mm-hmm. was able to, he knew what he wanted, but he was very loose with his directing style and just, you know, he had people improvising, he changed his mind and and obviously things didn't happen the way they wanted it to. They completely changed the ending. And then I guess maybe a more, sober Coppola then later did the editing mm-hmm. and said okay now what do we have here and how can I actually turn this into a a solid film because he doubted he was even right. making a good movie you know as the documentary leans into um but I think it's very impressive that it's still thought of as one of the best movies of all time considering how hard the production was but also considering how sort of stubborn he was a, a lot of the time about compromising and, and not doing things the way that he wanted to to do it yeah I feel like there you can sense that like I think watching this again, you know, we're knowing all the craziness that happened on set and you know the way they had to shoot certain things. 
I feel like you can feel a certain amount of this movie was made in the edit. Like someone mm-hmm. was given too much film, but luckily they were able to figure out how to put the pieces together to make it into a thing that resonated with people. And I think that's, you know, there's just no guarantee that that's what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what's kind of also adds to that miraculous thing about it, where it's somehow all of that insanity was then also able to be arranged and sometimes kind of like not not clunky or sloppy. Those are the wrong words, but it's kind of it's kind of episodic. It doesn't really feel right. like it has a strong narrative through line all the time. I mean, there is the one yeah. the singular goal, you know, going up the river. Mm-hmm to right. assassinate this one man but on the way it, it's pretty murky and it like leans very heavily on voiceover right. to the point right. where it feels like a noir i had never really yeah. clocked that before but it's just it's a lot of martin sheen sitting <laughs> and thinking and looking at things right. and talking <laughs> to himself but like and, yeah I, does anybody great. know if that's different in like the redux or the final cut I was wondering if it was like a Blade Runner situation. Where did I imagine do... it can't be? I, th- okay. I think the voiceover is yeah. too important to the movie because I was right. I was thinking about like you have you have this whole sanity as a setup kind of thing where like right. the first ten minutes you have Willard and he's just totally bonkers and then he is sent to go kill someone who is crazy. So you see him sort of normal and then do his descent into madness basically over the course of the movie. Um, and I think the voiceover i think this is one of the best movies actually for proof that voiceover works really well if you know what you're doing because not only would it be silly to try to change his thoughts into dialogue <laughs> right. where it's like he now he's talking to a crew member and he's like well i can't help but think about kurtz and his kids or whatever, you know? <laughs> but then also it does this really cool thing where you're listening to kurtz's recordings at the beginning mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you're listening to willard's voiceover and then at one point he is reading kurtz's letters so his voiceover is now kurtz's voice exactly so it really blurs the line um between those two things i just think that that uh that really it, the voiceover is like not only a helpful tool it's also actually used for a purpose in the movie yeah i mean it, it is doing something thematic as you're pointing out bry but i think it's interesting too that it has a uh distinctively different voice right because there was a different writer who wrote the sections of voiceover and it was a decent amount of it was recorded by somebody else as well joe estevez was recording some of the voiceover martin sheen's brother willard has the way that he speaks to the crew members is just this sort of like abrupt, not, you know, very, very cagey, not friendly way of being around them, which works for the character and makes a ton of sense. As you're pointing out, Brian, it would undercut that to have him like explain his thoughts to them. Mm. But also it's a dramatically different character voice. The way that Mm. Willard speaks to himself in his own head is dramatically different than any way that he speaks to anybody else. And of course is more like the way that, Kurt's talk um mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's really cool it's well thought out as a device not tacked on trying to fix something that exactly right can't be right fixed. <laughs> <laughs> it's so front-loaded also like the yeah. the film begins with you're in his head and you're insane <laughs> and right you know, with the, the helicopters and the ceiling fan and just like one of the most iconic openings you're in jim morrison's head and then uh-huh. you're <laughs> <laughs> exactly and so yeah you see like you hear and see what his internal life is and then he's like called to go like meet with 
real people mm-hmm. and be presentable. And I think just that that juxtaposition adds so much to that interaction, as does Harrison Ford. Because yeah. <laughs> it's young Harrison Ford. So beautiful. <laughs> that intro just sets the tone for the movie, too. Yeah. You know, like, it's just, okay, this is the kind of movie we're getting into. And then, like you said, then suddenly it's juxtaposed with uh, Harrison Ford. And uh, G.D. Mm-hmm. Spradlin uh, is the, the guy who plays General Corman, um, who I was like, what do I recognize him from? But I recently watched The Godfather 1 and 2, and he is uh, Senator Geary. The, the guy who is trying to, you know, Corleone, M- Michael's like, mm-hmm. you're going to do this. And da, da, da. he says, no, I don't think so. And Corleone basically says, well, you will or and then, you know, just the most amazing threat ever <laughs> on film. And then he's, oh, OK. Yeah. And Harrison Ford playing Colonel George Lucas, basically. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Colonel G. Lucas. Like, is it? Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, right? it is. We see you, Coppola. I feel like that's almost as hilarious as that. Like at some point, George Lucas was going to right. direct Apocalypse right. Now. What? I'd yeah, forgotten yeah. that mm. fact. And like, and they were going to film it in fact? Vietnam, like with yeah. real soldiers or something. Yeah, what? They were yeah. going to film it in Vietnam during the war. It's right. a terrible right. idea. That, that's the other crazy thing about this movie is it it started production just barely after the war sort of officially ended like we're right on the mm-hmm. tail it's kind of like uh watching the great dictator or casablanca you know right. which they're they're not hey let's make a movie 30 years later about about the war it's nope let's this is happening now yeah yeah exactly working freelance whether it's as a writer filmmaker podcaster or director can have a lot of benefits you get to have more flexibility and control over your work life but it also means that the financial side of things is entirely your responsibility to figure out. On Skillshare, you can find a bunch of classes to help you navigate the world of being a freelancer. One simple but important part of freelancing is bookkeeping. So I'm going to recommend the class Bookkeeping for Freelancers, How to Handle Your Finances by Emily Simcox. The class helps you choose the right bookkeeping method for your business, easily categorize and track your expenses, and stay organized throughout the year. I can say from experience that a little bit of organization in the beginning helps out a lot in the long run. This is just one of thousands of classes on entrepreneurship, design, and writing that you can find on Skillshare. And if you use our link, skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay, you get two free months of premium membership. So start planning for the future today at skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. One thing I want to say about that opening that I think ties into why this movie like sticks out in my head when I think about my film history. I don't even remember how it happened, but I was young, I think probably still in high school. And it was like a friend of my mom's had someone that worked at Pixar or something and they were doing a presentation on film. And so I got to go to this like amphitheater and it was Walter Murch giving a presentation about editing and the importance cool. of sound in film. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, cause I'd never seen apocalypse now, but he played the nice. opening, And I feel right. like that's like that activated parts of my brain that didn't exist before. Like, Oh, this is what filmmaking is. And this is what sound can be. And like how you can use surround sound and just the, the imagery and juxtaposition of the ceiling fan spinning and the helicopter mm-hmm. spinning like that was just like 
an awakening and all the overlays and transitions and everything yeah mm-hmm. it's still so powerful like so much of this film is also just a crazy technical achievement yeah. right all oh these God. different planes i also like that all the overlays and transitions and stuff are saved for transitional moments in the movie and i think that like that's where it becomes a bad art movie is when they're used during dialogue and (laughs) suddenly as he's talking you see this other thing in the back like that's also being overlaid it's no that's not the point of it the point is sort of while we have some downtime we can play a little and set the mood and set the tone but when we're in movie mode we're in normal movie mode Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that opening sequence sets the the tone in terms of like the madness and the, the journeys that the characters are gonna go on it also sort of like it creates right out of the gate the philosophy of the way that the movie is being filmed in this um in the way that it handles spaces because it's so claustrophobic and disorienting like you don't understand the layout of that hotel room you like where is the window where is the mm. like bureau and like He's looking at the ceiling, but he's upside down in the frame. It's purposefully disorienting you in the way that the jungle also becomes like disorienting and claustrophobic. The geography of of is never established. We never have a clear sense of like where they are. Like where are they on the river? Where what's coming up? Is there a city coming up? Is there more jungle? Is there like a troop? You know, you have you never have any idea where you are, and that is such a good conscious choice that's like a projection of the character's mentalities especially the further and further they get up river yeah i mean i i think something from the documentary that really stuck out to me was was coppola talking about the vietnam war being like the rock and roll war or the psychedelic mm-hmm. war yeah because, and, and and people were doing psychedelics while stationed in vietnam and <laughs> and but but even even if they weren't doing drugs i think just the complete confusion and madness yeah. of that war of like what are we even doing here what's even happening what's the is there a goal like <laughs> like i think it uh this movie so brilliantly it's like not just about that but it like puts you in that headspace like we've all been saying yeah. in such a remarkable way and i think part of what i loved about you know where the movie went and even how the ending feels is it just mm-hmm. feels like it's just emotionally honest to to that thing uh all like all the way through and even in those scenes where they're having like a polite lunch to talk about assassinating like this <laughs> this this like acclaimed general feels kind of trippy and weird like there's it, mm-hmm. it, 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 the whole thing feels like almost like a bad trip because you're like something's wrong with this like what exactly like the camera like follows people's hands down to the, yeah. like, the food that they're eating <laughs> right. and just travels in interesting ways Really quick, so we keep referencing the documentary, but in case people don't know, there's a documentary called Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse that was begun during the filming by Coppola's wife, Eleanor Coppola, uh, and she just filmed everything and I guess was like secretly recording even conversations (laughs) with Francis Ford Coppola. I love her so much for doing that. She was like, he wants me to do this. I'm going to do it. Right. And she's also, she's narrating it later. So it's like, she's this educated sweet grandmother kind of talking about this <laughs> these horror moments and just like ah oh, they were they were murdering uh caribou and i thought come outside this is beautiful like, <laughs> right. Right. yeah and i it's, love how she calls him francis throughout mm-hmm. like francis mm-hmm. is doing this francis is doing that and it, it puts you in the same like intimate space with the director and like mm-hmm. with the decisions that are being made it makes you feel like you're part of the crew or part of the family or whatever it is and that increases that like uh yeah 
the feeling to, I don't know, it just puts you right in it and it's uh, very affecting. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the it's being told from such an intimate like yeah. relationship place. Like it's yep. the wife of the filmmaker and she is also making a film that is just as fascinating, basically. <laughs> right. And it's right. just insane how, you know, there's just footage of everything, like the making of all the things. Um, so anyway, there's a million things to talk about in the documentary, and I'm sure we'll keep referencing them. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Like, it's intense. It's really intense. It's an amazing it's documentary. Really good. Just, just yeah. like flat out, just as, a, as documentaries go, it is an excellent documentary. Yeah. 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 Um, it really reminded me last year, I did a, a big tour through films and the documentaries about the doomed production, like pairings. Mm. So mm-hmm. if you are into this kind of thing, um, I think I mentioned it before on that podcast, but um, you can watch From Dusk Till Dawn and the documentary about making it, which is called Full Tilt Boogie. Um, which has a similar feel because they were filming out in the desert. And so it's like, and they were just like out in the desert for months kind of thing. And a set was destroyed. It was burned to the ground, um, that saloon set. And then um, Fitzcarraldo, the movie Fitzcarraldo by Werner Herzog, which this movie really reminds me of. Mm-hmm. Um, the, do- the documentary about that is called Burden of Dreams. And that is bonkers. And then, of course, Lost in La Mancha is the the most you know, right. sort of well known example of this. But yeah, if you if you're into this, you could you could go ahead and do like a little <laughs> series on doomed film productions and their accompanying movies. It is really interesting. Well, because I, I feel like it's I forget who I was watching something and some filmmaker was saying, I, I think it was when we were working on Terminator Two versus Aliens that video and watching all the making of uh-huh. stuff and the interviews with James Cameron and James Cameron saying like making a film is a war like it is a war <laughs> yeah and it's like there are just a lot of really interesting parallels and i feel like this this document documentary captures that feeling obviously the stakes are not merely comparable whatsoever but like the the pressure on the individual upon which everything rides i feel like is that kind of insane level of pressure yeah when there um, was like a war going on in the philippines at the time yeah so like mm, there was right. actually war happening like not far away from the production yeah like as if choreographing all those famous helicopter scenes wouldn't be hard enough uh-huh. on its own mm-hmm. because there was a civil war happening and they had made a deal with the philippines government where they could use their helicopters but when they needed to go fight, the helicopters would just leave in the middle of the shot and go fight the Civil War. And so, like, that was a thing that was happening in the middle of these extremely expensive shots and, like, ruining days of filming. And just it's nightmare. Insanity. Typhoon destroying, like, the giant, you know, sets they'd built. And, yeah, it's so crazy. And I feel like what's so remarkable, as we've already said, but specifically the the moment I always think about it is... You know, the, the famous line from Robert Duvall, who's amazing in this, right? Mm-hmm. The, I, I love the spell of napalm in the morning, that little mm-hmm. monologue that yeah. he gives. That that happens in the midst of this like huge wide shot where there's mm-hmm. like hundreds of extras, like yes. all the stuff happening. But it's this quiet, intimate moment. And so like for the filmmakers to be there and have everything being as insane as possible, but still commit to doing that moment in this way is just like so intense but it pays off so well and i feel like that my favorite part of that line isn't the you know the beginning of i love the smell of napalm in the morning i feel like it's at the end his yes. last line where he's yes. just like 
some days it's some, some days day this like, war yeah. is gonna end <laughs> right. change i want you to surf in the middle of this <laughs> you're, gonna surf, you're gonna kill i love there's so many uh there's multiple godfather cast members here uh mm-hmm. the, the guy that i mentioned and brando obviously and duval and duval plays the biggest 180 from tom hagan who is like the one of the sweetest quietest members of the godfather and then he is he does represent the rock and roll war that we're talking about where he is he is the character that sort of shows the absurdity of all this and the the almost love of of being in the middle of this which makes sense that, that his big scene is is literally in the middle mm-hmm. of this wide shot where all this stuff is going on and i think that there's during that scene my girlfriend said this this almost feels like the coen brothers right now just the, <laughs> right the complete mm-hmm. absurdity of all this terrible thing all, all these terrible things going on and then yet you have this guy who just is concerned about the waves and that's the only reason they came to this place and and it also makes the movie more enjoyable to watch because there is this humor between all the crazy and uh yeah. but yeah i just feel like one of the reasons that line is so famous and the ride of the valkyrie sequence is so famous is because it is one of the most striking moments in the movie where it's not just look at all this death and everything it's that's not what this movie is this movie is this this total roller coaster ride where you never know if you're in in silly land or crazy horrible land yeah <laughs> well, and, and the, the combination of the two is kind of the point right know, exactly like, yeah. mm-hmm. of course yeah. and and i mean how marvelously cast is robert duvall in this uh-huh. he's, he's just amazing at it i was thinking about the introduction of kilgore when um willard first meets him and he says something like he was just one of those guys you could tell he was going to like he's going to come out of the war without a scratch on him, basically, like nothing mm-hmm. could touch him right. in this war. And and you have to have somebody that is feels that larger than life that can embody that just so, so brash, like he can he like commands the chaos somehow. And so like even when literally everything is on fire around him he's just kind of striding around making declarations and like <laughs> but, and and there's not a doubt in my mind and, and you know partially because willard has told us so but like there's not a doubt in my mind when i was watching that scene for the first time just a couple of days ago like that kilgore was going to come out perfectly unscathed everybody else in this scene like it's going to go to hell in every other way probably but kilgore is going to be absolutely fine mm-hmm. and so you get that he carves out this space on screen and that you're just, your eye is drawn to him and you, you have to have this character. And I love how early it is in the movie where it's like, this is the war. These are the kinds of soldiers that are fighting the war um, or that are in charge of it. They're the ones who are sending people to die. They are the ones who are like, you know, seemingly above all of this stuff. As Kilgore literally is for most of that sequence, he's above it. Everyone else is dying under him. He's going to be fine. And that's what imbues him with that confidence. When he's got that that kind of cowboy hat Americana thing going on. And I, I think there's also just, there was a quote in the documentary about um, how, you know, America likes to put on a big show, you know? Yeah. It's like, we're like, we're showmen. So it's like, yeah, we're going to blast music. We're going to like, we're going to rock and roll. We're going to have like the, the playboy bunnies come out and give like a big, you know, concert show. And it, and that mm-hmm. goes all wrong. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it was that like weird, also surreal, but real like American showmanship, you know, like being mixed in with this, like on the ground, like raw horror for the people who are living here. But like, exactly. It's almost like the American spirit is like, uh, 
it, it's it's mind is focused on the show not the reality not the right. actual mm-hmm. on the ground thing happening exactly yeah, definitely there is an interesting moment of characterization for Kilgore when you're first meeting him where, you know, they're in the village or whatever, and there's someone on the ground who's been basically mortally, oh, yeah. like, wounded. Uh, yeah. And, and people are, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're holding his guts in with, like, a, 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 a bull. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the man is, like, asking for water, and no one's giving him water. And Kilgore is like, mm-hmm. any man who's brave enough to blah, 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 like, can drink from my canteen. And so it's this, like, weird intense like selflessness and empathy for you know another person and then someone runs over and is like this famous surfer guy is over here mm-hmm. and he kind of just like drops the canteen and like walks away like <laughs> right he like dribbles just... the water over him by accident <laughs> and like walks away right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it's just like so much like such a broad spectrum of characters established so quickly in that mm-hmm. moment whiplash it's insane yeah well and it is again it goes to the heart of who Kilgore is because he is he is part of this like worship of the American soldier the American like hero that sort of huge almost over reverence for like our heroes you know um honoring all the fallen and all of this stuff um as long as it's convenient to do so basically and the minute it's not it's like this ideal that we espouse but don't live up to on the ground that's Kilgore. And so it's a it's it's a perfectly designed moment. And in addition to the way that it's filmed, which, of course, is like back from a distance. So we're mm-hmm. almost like in the position of a photojournalist, right? Where like, what a right. great shot that would be to to see the general leaning over to give his water to the dying man. <laughs> right. uh, like you get that shot, but then he walks away the minute you you get it, you know. Well, speaking of photojournalist, we have, <laughs> we have Kilgore in the first act as the as the sort of representation of of this complete patriotism, sort of like loves the war. And then in the third act, you have the reflection, the the dark reflection of him in Dennis Hopper, who just plays himself in the movie. Right. <laughs> Truly. Which became Which I, very clear in the documentary. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like that you turn off the camera, you're cut, and he's like, man, I don't know my lines, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. You are just Dennis Hopper. Yeah. And I just love that also in the documentary that at some point Francis Ford Coppola found himself in the situation where he maybe had to direct a scene with Martin Sheen, Dennis Hopper, and Marlon Brando. <laughs> and just like... And like at least two of them are incredibly difficult and like yeah. right. and maybe insane. Yeah. In and there's ways. no script or you can't get yeah. them to and follow the yeah. script. Oh my God. Marlon yeah. Brando will only just do what he feels. Yeah. And Dennis yeah. Hopper's just like, but like, explain it to me, man. Like, what's right. it about? No, like, just, I'm like, trying to. <laughs> you won't let me finish the sentence. I'm trying to explain it to you. I gave you the script five days ago. Yeah, man, but I've been busy. What? I mean, so I'd always like heard about like Marlon Brando and like Marlon Brando things, but like my God, like yeah, just like just like what a person to have to work with. Yeah. Well, and so to to set up what they explain in the documentary, which is that you know the whole thing is this journey to find Kurtz, and so it's got to deliver once you get there. So Coppola casts Marlon Brando for a million dollars a week mm-hmm. for three weeks total. A million of that is is just given up front without yep. any work being done. And then Marlon Brando is refusing to adjust the start date because, you know, the movie went long and things changed. And so it'd be like, can we just do this some other time? And Brando was refusing to do that. Coppola had given him Heart of Darkness to read so he would know <laughs> like what the hell we're doing. <laughs> Brando shows up 
is extremely overweight, hasn't read, is completely unprepared. And it's just like, I, th- I feel like that's the point for me in watching the documentary where my brain breaks. Like, right. How it's can like, you? It, it's all been building to this. Like, this is right. what it's all about. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then I think Coppola's attention to detail where he says, okay, if you are overweight, then let's write that into the character. Uh-huh. Let's say you are the right. most hedonistic. And the brain just said, no, I don't want to do it that way. So it's like, okay, <laughs> I can't make your character not be fat. I don't know how to do so that. So it's like, right. So all that he was left with was like, well, we'll do three weeks of improv. And and here, and here are some big clothes. I mean, that's what's so insane, too, is where it's like he's having to make this insane decision of like, do we stop things to try to write something that will make sense? Or is the better bet to just roll on three weeks of improv with Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando? Which is an interesting discussion to have. It's an, it, like, it, it, right. you know, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> I mean, the it end of the movie worked. is very hazy. <laughs> right. I, I but it's feel supposed like... to be. It's, I mean, Kurtz is yeah. crazy. Like, if Kurtz was supposed to be this brilliant mathematician, you couldn't say just improv, you know, but you just put the camera right. on him and say, explain bloodlust. He says, oh, well, I read that the human animal is the only, or whatever. You know, he says, <laughs> you have to get to know I mean, the it horror. You have works, to. And I didn't doubt it. Yeah. yeah you minute. have to become BFFs with the horror. And then when the horror calls and says, I have to move a couch, you say, I'll be right over. And <laughs> when you ask the horror, can I get you anything from Starbucks? And the horror says, I'll take a slim mochaccino with a caramel drizzle. The horror. It's not far off from what was happening. Like there's raw footage right. of him like walking away. Just like, I don't know what else to say. I'm not going to come up with any more dialogue today. My back's to the camera. It doesn't matter right. what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, he, yeah, that that moment where he does, he's just like, I can't think of any more dialogue today. Yeah. And that's like, the end of that. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> and then uh, also, we're talking sort of the reflection, the symmetry of the movie. The end, you have Brando improvising. At the beginning, you have Martin Sheen doing mm-hmm. his his best Oof. Charlie Sheen impression, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like actually having a breakdown in front of a camera crew right and then actually cuts his hand and says let's just keep doing this i need to i need to get rid of my demons right now and then he has a heart attack shortly thereafter right yeah the dedication i mean that is the hallmark of this movie and Mm -hmm. you only have to watch a few frames of it as we were talking about to see that partially because the opening scene you can tell that the experience that martin sheen is having is not acting i mean it's he is as present as he can possibly be working through his own whatever it is that he's dealing with in that scene. Um, and the the unpredictability to what he's going to do is also evident. Like, you wouldn't be able to choreograph the way that he moves around that hotel room. There's no logic to it or, or, or anything like that. It's not designed to be cinematic. He's not playing to the camera. He's just in his own mind. And so when you see that level of dedication in the opening scene, Everything else in the movie sort of ends up spilling out from that or like spiraling out. I mean, part of that is just Martin Martin Sheen in every scene where you now know who he is. And so you know what he's capable of and you know where he's capable of going. But then everything else is not one bit of it. It is it is impressively staged as it is. Feels like it's done by half measures. Yeah, in some way, not fully dedicated at every moment to Coppola's vision for it. So as we were saying, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is 
Coppola and his sort of very loose style of filmmaking. And that right. comes through in stuff like The Godfather and The Conversation also. But it's also the decade. Just movies in the yeah. 70s had this just rawness and this realness to them that I don't think we've ever really recovered. I think the, there was like a looseness in the 60s, but not a lot of great films came out of the 60s. Plenty, but not it wasn't sort of like a decade that's thought of as as cinematic. And then the 80s, things got a lot more structured and a little cleaner. And I think the 70s is this really nice marriage between the two where movies felt like movies. They felt like films, but there was also this rawness and this looseness to the to the filmmaking that makes it feel like like you're just watching a documentary. Like I remember the first time watching The Godfather, I had to sort of I forget if I talked about this before, but I had to sort of like explain to my brain that the decade this film was being made and the decade this film was set in were two different things. Because right, it just yeah. felt it just felt like what I was watching was what I was watching. Some of that sense is created by the long, long leash that directors were given by studios at that Definitely. time. Right. Yeah. And we that's on full display here. Like mm -hmm. I mean, you know, famously Coppola was like spending a lot of his own money on this um and risking a lot of his own like assets in order to get it made. But at the same time with these like new Hollywood guys, they were the ones that the studios were writing blank checks to essentially. And like the cachet of the Godfather went a long way for Coppola and nobody was like telling him no, basically once they got out there into the Philippines and they were going, you know, he kept asking for more money and asking for more money. And the studio was just like, okay, okay, okay. And so you, and not really monitoring how it was being spent clearly well that's the thing mm. like the, the lack of oversight you you right. like i think maybe that's part right. of what was happening in this era also was just simply like a lack of regulations <laughs> and a lack of like any kind of like union oversight or things so it, just things are just nuts you know things yeah. are just nuts on set when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Somewhat tangential, but relates in that I was just watching uh, a Vox Explained episode about like billionaires and, you know, mm -hmm. income inequality and blah, blah, blah. But talking about how, you know, the turn of the century was when, you know, the first billionaires came in and the inequality that happened there is like vastly more than even the inequality we have now, because it was the first time this thing was possible. And so there weren't, like you were saying, Alex, there weren't regulations, there weren't like we didn't know any better and we didn't know that things needed to be put in check. And I feel like that's kind of behind everything that we're saying here about the 70s is yep. like film had <laughs> matured and was reaching like this new level of like awesomeness, but also with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility. <laughs> but who was putting the responsibility on there? Like not that's anyone. the godfather, right? That quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The question becomes who, you know, who is responsible? And this was the era that the director was rising as superstar, which is what mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, where up until this point, directors were just like sort of studio guys and they just kind of were working within this machine and no one really like they were famous to an extent, but it was really like old Hollywood was really about the stars. It wasn't about the filmmakers, the screenwriters, like 
No one, those guys were not celebrities. But then in the 60s and 70s, when this new school of filmmaker rose up, you had the the sort of cult of celebrity that was starting to attach itself to the directors. Mm -hmm. And that is what, like, again, yielded some of our greatest movies ever. But like, you know, you have Scorsese and Lucas and Spielberg and like Mm -hmm. even people like Malik came out of this school because Mm -hmm. they were allowed to just make whatever they wanted, pretty much. (laughs) Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) The studios were just like, this is the guy. Write him a check. See what he makes and it's Mm. probably going to be good, you know, and that's where auteur theory comes from as well. And so I'm not lamenting that that is over necessarily, but there's no doubt you can't make those movies like you can't make Apocalypse Now. Now. now right <laughs> like yeah like 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 the insanity that we're that we're talking about that was actually yes. present for the filmmaking that comes through in the film exactly. i don't know how you could recreate that now because it would exactly. be probably illegal yeah <laughs> right or you wouldn't be able to get insurance for it or like right. i mean i feel like yeah. that's you know the tom cruise insanity is like probably the closest thing we have of like sure. what insane thing is tom cruise gonna do have sure. you heard? can't do it in america because they won't insure him like have yep. you heard what he's so, going to do next? It's yeah. not going to be in America. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. It's going to be in space. How high do the borders go? <laughs> That's yeah. true. Actually, I think the closest thing we might have to it now is is Netflix. Um, mm. For better or for worse, I, I feel like they are more than most studios just giving people money and saying, go yeah. do yeah. what, you, what yes. you want to do. What I like about that is it keeps things from having to be a certain length or have a certain sure. anything to it. People can just make the thing they want to make. And it's still, you know, that also means there's a lot of not great things coming out. Like it's, you can't mm-hmm. sort of like use Netflix as your next thing they do is going to be great, but it also means a lot more people are getting to make what they want. A lot more people are getting work. And I think that that's, that's cool. Yeah. For me, it's like, it comes down to, I feel like, we hold up these movies as being great because they are, but all of these factors are sort of underpinning why they are great. And the biggest one being this like singularity of vision that you get when you have somebody, a really strong director at the helm, who's also doing the writing or co-writing. But it, it had all of these like, of course, drawbacks because we were getting these voices and we weren't getting a lot of other voices because there was no indie cinema because you didn't mm-hmm. have somebody that's willing to put however many million dollars onto your vision. And so like, you know, it just, it probably wasn't sustainable as we see, like even going into the 80s, there was it, it's shifting away from this, kind of of filmmaking um and so many good things have come out of that shift the losses are what they are yep they are You're what right. they are yeah yeah so this is kind of a tangent because it we're you know we're conversations evolving a little bit past the movie itself and just kind of mm-hmm. what the movie means and represents but sure something I, I was thinking about as we were talking and brian you mentioning you know his coppola's loose way of filmmaking and something i've always wrestled with as a filmmaker is trying to figure out how I feel about like that kind of filmmaking where Mm. Martin Sheen you're gonna get super drunk and we're just gonna roll and And slice your hand up and (laughs) like like there's that or there's like a hyper controlled you know probably animation is like the furthest on the other side where like sure right there's Mm -hmm. room for you know voice performance and you know improvisation but like every frame of every minute etc has to be you know specifically designed and so like again we call all of these things movies is there a difference between i've just filmed real life 
and put it into a narrative. So it's not, I'm not trying to make it a documentary. Right. Like, what is that versus the hyper controlled other end of the spectrum? And like, there's probably no, no reason to reconcile these things. Like, I think it just is what it is. But I've, I've always felt uncomfortable with how I, how I feel about those two things. I'm just curious what your guys' reactions are to that idea. I think about this with music is um, if, you know, if I sit down to write something, I can try to have this very rigid idea of what I'm going to write. And that can be fine. And then sometimes you just, you jam with your friends and then you see what comes out of it and you, something comes out of it. You never knew was going to come out of it. And there's a million points in between of, of just sort mm -hmm. of like, Oh, I, I have this general, sometimes you, you start singing nonsense syllables to just to come up with a melody. And then one of those nonsense syllables sounds like a word and that word triggers a theme or an idea that you want to then turn the song into. And I think that you can do that when you're sitting in your room with your guitar because you're not costing a studio millions of dollars, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think that outside of the restrictions of time and money uh, and all the other restrictions, like it's a complete gray scale. It's a complete sliding scale. And it, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just really what works best for the artist and what works best for the product that they are Try the, the, you know the the thing that they are trying to create well and i think there's i mean maybe one thing you're trying to get at michael is is as a filmmaker yourself or or you know stuff we're working on like is it cheating in a way to like not be the david fincher not be the edgar wright who has meticulously planned everything out and is crafting something intentionally and to be the terrence malick who shoots you know <laughs> the most the most film like i think on the new world like kodak like sent him like a bottle of champagne because he'd like bought more film reel from them than like any movie ever um <laughs> so, like, just, he just filmed everything and just saw what happened i don't know that like you can really privilege one over the other because if the end product is still made with craft and made with intention ultimately like like we can all tell when a movie is just kind of nothingness is just kind of like oh this is a pretentious like mashup right. mashup of what you think is artful but it means nothing to anybody mm -hmm. that's that's you can say okay i don't like that but if a if a movie was a miracle that came together from a bunch of accidents and then a filmmaker put those accidents together and made an amazing thing i don't think that's any less valuable than like you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is like the most meticulously crafted movie ever, and I'm, I love that it exists. Right. But I, but also the New World by Terrence Malick is one of my favorite films. So mm -hmm. it's it's that kind of a thing where, um, I think there's 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 a tendency to like privilege one over the other potentially depending on your on your like way of being or the, what your values are. But I think I want movies to be made that come from both ends of that spectrum because they can both be very valuable. Right. Because you are. In the editing process, you are then crafting what you've shot and turning that into a movie. If you shot so recklessly, you don't have a movie. Well, then right. that's not good. But if right. you if you have a vision and you have an idea, and you're not sure whether your movie is going to be ninety minutes or you know two hours or two and a half hours yet, because you don't know what it is, and you're going to figure that out in the edit, but you are confident you are capturing what you need to capture. I think that's fine. Yeah, um, I have a few thoughts here, but one of the biggest ones has to do with respect is what I'm going to go with. Like, because the thing about making a movie is 
you really are not, even if you wrote it, even if you're the director of it, and let's say you're even producing it yourself and it's your own money. Let's say you have complete control, basically, um, in some magical world where you're independently wealthy or perhaps a Coppola. But like, <laughs> let's say that that's the case. Nonetheless, you are not making that movie by yourself. And so it becomes about respecting the other people that are around you as artists and creators and human beings. One of the issues with the new Hollywood school of filmmaking was abuse of the privileges by these directors who were in no way being put in check. We talked about The Shining and the rampant abuse of Shelley Duvall on that production because it was just like, well, it's Kubrick. What are you going to do? We have all this money and we're making this movie. And like, um, and Nicholson's totally unhinged and like, we're just, you know, rewriting the script as we go along. That is potentially incredibly disrespectful and abusive to the people who are working on the movie with you. I think Terrence Malick is a good example of somebody who like probably the last sort of bastion of this kind of filmmaking where he's you know sort of making his movies as he goes along and people know when they sign up to do it that they're like potentially going to spend way more time and energy and whatever on something that might not end up in the movie or whatever i think it was on i was reading an article about night of cups where christian bale was walking on the beach you know he was like giving this like 17 page monologue or something and then he turned around and terry was filming a dog that was like running (laughs) on the beach as well and it, it was just like but but that's okay if if the actors sign up for that and if you're clear like hey we are looking for something in the process of doing this i think that the the risk is people like hitchcock and who was notorious for for not being respectful to his actors as people um and human beings and artists like if you are searching for something you know when you when you listen to martin sheen talk about that opening sequence he's like you know it was this like raw experience it was really visceral da 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 but even when he says that on the documentary you get the sense of like is he glad like right (laughs) was he okay with it at the time was it not potentially harmful or you know um there's a reason we don't make movies like this anymore and that's one of those reasons is that even if what you're doing is costing somebody time and energy that they didn't because you didn't plan or because that's part of your method, they have to be respected. That's just what it is to be working in a collaborative medium. Definitely. Yeah. I think it is just one of those questions that I ask and there is no answer because of everything that we've all just said here. And I think I guess that's probably ultimately what I find fascinating about is that film is this thing that we have a clear idea of, but also it can be anything at the same time. And that's just such an interesting, uh, interesting aspect of the medium. Yeah. Before we get back into the movie, uh, I just wanted to mention that we talked in a recent episode about how when you shoot something in digital, it's never going to be a higher resolution than it is. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what the nice thing about film is. And I just, was so blown away by watching apocalypse now and and the color and the look of everything for this movie that's that's as old as it is like also the color scheme just the grays and the browns mean that fire looks so orange Uh and the purple smoke looks so purple uh but i wanted to mention the godfather one and two apocalypse now and north by northwest are actually 
four of the most beautiful Blu-rays I've ever seen mm. because of the restoration and the the remastering that they've done on it. And obviously you think, what's a great Blu-ray? You think Lord of the Rings or Fury Road or something. But I also mm -hmm. think there is something astounding about the work that's yes. been done on some of these older movies and how uh, and how nice they can look today in a way that is just as gripping and as beautiful as a movie that is shot in the most high def available thing there is. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a Tom Scott video on YouTube where he talks about, uh, you know, recently all these studios went back and did remasters of music videos from 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy of certain videos such as smash mouth's all-star <laughs> <laughs> can never be above 480p. Wow. We could do a whole hour on the tragedy of that. <laughs> <laughs> Next LTS video. I do want to say the one thing that I like that fascinates me about this movie or it is just something that we've talked about a few times before, which is the simplicity of the story. Right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it reminds me of it, I think it's supposed to, but it reminds me not just of the Joseph Conrad novel, but it reminds me of the Odyssey. Like mm -hmm. it's supposed to be, you know, there's like the, the sirens are there and the playboy bunnies. And then there's like the, the natives that are standing on their canoes and things like guarding the gates of hell almost. Right. Like it, it has this very classical, simple, uh, O'Brien, go ahead. Which is why Coppola called it the idiotacy. Right. He did. Yeah. The idiotacy. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, just going back to, if you're going to undertake something that's really ambitious in one way, it's super smart to go simple with it in another way, like in this sort of right. foundational way. And so mm. like, even though I really like how this movie ends, it almost doesn't even really matter how it ends. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. right. The fact that they were willing to, to dive into it and make it without an ending tells you that the ending kind of didn't really matter. It's about right. the descent. It's not really about what you learn when you get to the bottom. It's about what that looks like. Right. diving all the way down into the depths of the of the human psychology the heart of darkness you might say um it has to do with that and so when you have this very simple narrative form the episodic structure works as we talked about with, with Lewin Davis the imagery is classical imagery so you're referencing it's illusion it's something we are all familiar with and then you also can work with a brando who's the <laughs> the person waiting at the end you know because what happens to him is more it's more about what happens um, to Willard, it isn't really about what happens to Kurtz. Mm -hmm. And you just talking about the ending, the original ending, as they talk about the documentary was Willard and Kurtz like fight off the Viet Cong and then the American helicopter shows up and then Willard shoots down the helicopter and says, I fought too hard for this. And he's basically gone full Kurtz as, as the kids say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that I think that that I think either ending is fine. Um, I think, but I think that is an interesting ending to just say he has. It's kind of like the Godfather. It's he has gone completely corrupt and he has become the thing he never wanted to be. Also, thought it was interesting that Harvey Keitel was initially cast. Yeah, and then and then they decided to go another way. And I think Harvey Keitel is a great actor, but he has a a rigidness and a, and a harshness to him. Whereas Martin Sheen has sort of an innocence and a lightness to him where he's President Bartlett. Man. It's President Bartlett. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's more interesting to watch nothing against Harvey Keitel, of course, but it's more interesting to watch someone like Martin Sheen go on this descent than it is kind of like The Shining, where we talked about 
if you cast Jack Nicholson, you're already setting the audience up for crazy. Right. It's not a secret what's going <laughs> right. to happen. And, yeah. and whether or not that's the right choice, I don't know. But it's it's more interesting to to sort of see uh, the polarity that a character can go through over the course of a film. Right. And I do want to say that despite the episodic structure, it's not like this movie doesn't have any momentum or like a build. Right. It mm. does build. It does get increasingly worse. Sure. And, and maddening. And um, the scene where... They stop that boat and it's <sighs> the it's the work. Yeah. And then they find the puppy after they've yeah. murdered everybody on the boat. That's the that actually I would venture to say I'd be interested to know. Is that the midpoint? midpoint. It, yep. Yep. It was. I, I actually, checked. Yep. It was yep. You guys checked it. <laughs> yeah. It's like that. Uh, yes. Perfect. It's, <laughs> it's it's exactly that moment where you're like, this will not end well. These right. guys are not coming back from this mission, at least not psychologically, even if they physically come back from this right. mission, because right. they've just killed all of these innocent people. It's awful. Yeah. I'm coming off of Sunset Boulevard and Parasite. We talked about the sort of the midpoint decision. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, you yeah. have... You have Lawrence, quote, Larry Fishburne as Mr. Clean, and he needlessly kills all these people. And then he is needlessly killed. You know, right. uh, he actually said he thought he his character in the film was there to represent the kids who were there, who just didn't know what they were doing. Exactly. Right. But then you also have Willard making his midpoint decision where he kills that woman, where he, yeah. mm-hmm. he that's sort of the first moment where you see him do something that sort of feels like the point of no return. And I think that 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 is what a midpoint does. I don't know if Francis Ford Coppola thought about midpoints when he's making this crazy (laughs) all over the place movie with three different cuts, but it certainly feels from a, at least watching it in 2020, it feels like that is the moment where this character, the turning point. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Again, in the documentary, they talk about how it was the actors that wanted to have a scene like that. So it Mm, kind of came from them and that, I feel like it's usually a terrible idea to listen to the actors that much. But like in this situation, I feel like it, it really paid off and it was so smart for all the reasons right. you just you just said. Well, we have the sense and I feel like, um, you know, there's this natural rhythm to or this. Um, and this is just like a conversation for another time. But we've talked before about the psychology of storytelling and sort of the naturalness, like how we sense narrative and how we sense Mm -hmm. what like a journey is and what an arc is and like there's a reason why our stories take the form that they do it's something very deeply embedded in the human psyche either just from our ancestors or something else and so it doesn't surprise me that somebody the actors probably in this case were sensing Mm -hmm. there has to be a shift here like Mm -hmm. we've gone on we've you know we're halfway there and we need to know like something we have to start that that turn that downturn into the the dark place that this is going to go and then yeah everyone starts to die one by one <laughs> have i talked about at all the like the feature film that i made in the high school slash a bit yes you have okay okay. You okay yeah and have i talked about how i recently discovered that we created a midpoint like almost exactly oh interesting what you were saying mm. all this is to support what you were saying about like I think there's some kind of intrinsic either from the society that we live in or deeper just to human psychology where we can feel certain things and so I made mm-hmm. in high school I wrote this crazy feature film we shot it this one summer it was awful we put it away and then the next summer a friend and I came back and we kind of did probably what a lot of apocalypse now editing was which was like okay what's working what isn't get rid of everything that's not and then we like realized there were certain things that just felt like they were missing 
And one of the scenes that we added was one of the scenes I was very proud of at the time. And so I recently was going back and scrubbing through. And I realized that that scene that we added is exactly at the midpoint. And the thing that happens in that scene is exactly the main character making a choice that they cannot come back from. Mm -hmm. And it like spooked me almost that (laughs) me from 15, 20 years ago, whatever, just intuitively could feel something like that needed to happen. And so I I like it when those things reveal themselves Mm -hmm. to just kind of confirm that structure isn't you know, a thing that somebody right wrote in a book and now we apply. Like it's it's tapping into something deeper that we feel is missing if it's not there in a story that we're being we're being told. I love that there's like an origin story for your midpoints fiction. (laughs) (laughs) It like it blew my mind. I was like freaking out and wanted to tell people and no one was around that would care or understand. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're gonna take from Apocalypse Now? Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. Trisha already started us off with talking about the simplicity of of the story. And I think that was the thing that struck me was people talk about the length of a movie. And I think that sometimes length is not the key thing. It's how lost are we and how much energy mm-hmm. do we need to to output in order to follow this thing. And I think that Apocalypse Now is one of the biggest movies ever made. And yet it's built on the simplicity of this singular mission where character inciting incident has to do this thing at the end, does the thing the entire time. Doesn't matter what's happening. We know that he just needs to get from point A to point B to achieve a goal. Doesn't even matter whether he does in the end. It's just we know that that's what he is striving to do. And then on the way, you have these vignettes, which are sort of separate from each other so you have your robert duvall and you have your uso playboy show and you have your dennis hopper you have all these vignettes along the way and each of those is a fairly straightforward simple not overly complicated story and then mm-hmm. you know like robert duvall shows up and martin sheen takes a back seat for 10 minutes he's not even mm-hmm. in the movie almost it's just all the the, the robert duvall show the kilgore show um <laughs> because that's where we are right now we're focused on this one thing but he doesn't come back they're gone we don't need them we don't need those characters to come back we we got our time with them and then you have the rest of the crew on the boat we don't know their backstories we don't know that much about them we don't have these B and C and D plots that are about what they're doing. They're just, they're there and they represent a certain character from this war. You know, they each play their part, but there's not this overcomplicated storytelling about who all of them are. And I just think it's like, once you know exactly what's going on at any given moment and where we are, then it allows the movie to be long and moody and artistic and thematically heavy and all this kind of stuff without feeling too exhausting because your brain is not trying to do all that extra work to try to keep track of all these plot lines. You have this one singular thread that you're following and then your brain is allowed to just enjoy everything else that's going on, the mood and the music and the action and the character moments and all of that stuff. And I just think that it's it's just such a great example of how much mental real estate you get by keeping your story simple mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. allows yeah, yeah, you yeah. to do so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Cool. Alex? Yeah, I think I've already kind of touched on my lesson a bit, but I think what struck me about this film was how so much of, I think, the statement the film is making about Vietnam and about war and about America and any of the like overarching themes or statements 
are communicated so much not through even what's said or what's even in the text as much as just the raw experience of the film itself Mm. which i think is really impressive and really interesting the idea that even the headspace you put an audience into through the way you're portraying the situation like can be in itself the statement can be in itself the theme and so that was just a really interesting lesson to take away for myself of you know if there's a situation in a film like vietnam like you know, like a time and place that you want to say something about, you can say something about it, not even through the, you know, on the surface dialogue, but just Mm -hmm. through what kind of an experience is this cinematically. And that is the statement. Uh, So that, that is what was so cool about this movie. And I just, I can't wait to rewatch it. Actually. I want to see Mm -hmm. the final cut and compare. And I'm I'm just so curious. I do too now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Trisha. Mine is like, I guess the oversimplified way to say it is just go with your gut. I mean, if there was ever a movie that teaches that, it's this one. Uh-huh. Don't try this at home, kids. Go with your gut and get really lucky. Go with your gut. Don't make a movie this way. <laughs> Those two things at the same time. I don't know. I was really struck when I was watching Hearts of Darkness, the documentary. There's a moment, I think it's like three quarters of the way through, where Coppola is talking about not wanting to make something pretentious. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the artist, the artist is pretentious. And if it's pretentious, then it's not useful to anybody. And so, like, I don't want to be pretentious. But then I realized, like, I just have to make what I am making. And if it's pretentious, then that's what it's going to be. And, like, <laughs> honestly, he's so pretentious. And, like, <laughs> he was he was so pretentious at Cannes when he won the jury award that, he, like, and there was at least like one reporter, like famous film critic that got up and left because he was just so disgusted by like the way that Coppola was talking about his own movie, um, <laughs> which is fine and valid. Uh, but but just that, like, I feel as a filmmaker, like or as a writer, I also get very into my head about like, what are people going to think about this? What are they going to think mm. about this? Like, is this is this pretentious? Is this like too intellectual or heady or is it like, am I manipulating it too much? And, um, you know, time and again, in in the course of learning about how this movie got made, we see from Coppola just a double down and a double down um, and, uh, you know, adhering to his instincts, his instinct to fire Harvey Keitel. Um, like, I, I, on the documentary, the <laughs> on the documentary, um, his wife is like, I went upstairs for 15 minutes to put the children to bed. <laughs> and when I came back down, he had decided to fire Harvey. And like, that is a gut reaction that obviously wasn't thought all the way through necessarily. It was just he was watching the footage and is like, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, obviously take it with a grain of salt. Like I said, don't make a movie this way. But there are clearly instincts, good instincts at work here that Coppola is listening Mm -hmm. to. I'm a very instinctive writer myself, so that's normally not my problem. But the older that I get, the more that I'm, you know, when I was very young, I was exclusively instinctive. And now Mm -hmm. that I'm older, I find those two things wrestling sometimes. And so um, it's just kind of a good word here. Yeah. A little aside about that, I've sometimes heard like, you know, there's kind of like your head brain, but also like your gut brain. Like there's yeah. this kind of like science has now proven that the bacteria in your gut interacts <laughs> with your brain. So you literally have a gut brain. So scientifically, Michael, we can listen to our guts sometimes is what I'm yes. saying. Because science. Yes. I think it's also important to feed your gut things so that it knows what the hell it's talking about. Yes. So you can rely on 
what it's telling you. Some good, you know, some good movies, yeah, prebiotic yeah. movies. That, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh boy. Um, awesome. Cool. Well, yeah. I so my lesson is pretty short because it's what Trisha and Brian you've already said, which mm-hmm. was th- like the one because of the way this movie was made. I feel like there isn't a ton of like what are repeatable lessons that you can right. take away from this experience. But the one thing I wrote down was like exactly what you guys were saying. It's long and like maybe teeters on what is you could call boring at times, maybe like I'm engaged, but it's not like I'm not entertained constantly, but I want to know what's going to happen when they get to the end of the road. Yep. And mm-hmm. it's just like as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, we kind of like saving private Ryan also yeah. has a, a similar kind of thing. I think there's, there's more plot happening kind of in saving private Ryan. But there is this sort of thing of like, are they going to find Ryan? Like, it's just a very simple thing that then lets you, as we've said, take these detours and and view them through the eyes of the people that are on this journey and have that be where so much of the meaning is created. Yeah. And that kind of dovetails into my what I'm watching. Mm -hmm. So I'll just go with that. Uh, So on Netflix, there is a series called Middle Ditch and Schwartz. Oh which yeah, is uh-huh. the uh, the improv show by Thomas Middleditch and mm-hmm. Ben Schwartz, right? Yeah, uh, and it's a you know an improv show that they've you know did live and have done live for several years, and I've almost seen it a couple times. And I have like a improv background. I, that's that sounds <laughs> extremely pretentious, so I'm going to <laughs> dramatically qualify that. Wow, okay. which is uh, in high school we had an improv team. <laughs> And I tried out for it to impress a girl I had a crush on and then accidentally made the team and then had to do improv. (laughs) And I was not good at it, but that's also where I met all of my friends that I've then had for forever. And so there I do have like a knowledge of like what improv is more than the average person. Anyway, so watching improv be done and this is like long form improv where it's just the two of them. They come on stage, they interact with the audience and ask questions so they like pick someone and they're like what's going on in your life and they're like well i'm getting married and i have a my best friend is not going to be there and blah 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 and then they do a, like a 45 minute show that they're making up that incorporates those things mm-hmm. and wow. it's hilarious first of all you're just laughing constantly but i think it's also a really interesting examination of storytelling and if you can watch yourself while you're watching it i think it it speaks to what we were talking about earlier, this intuitive sense mm-hmm. of like what what story is and when it's working and when it isn't. Mm-hmm. Because there are moments, you know, I think especially in the second episode they did, it took them a while to find what the narrative was. And the whole time it was funny and I was laughing, but there was also just something in me that was like, yeah, but like, where's this going? And like, how long am I going to be here? Like, I'm laughing, but like, what's what's happening? And then there's a moment, there's a very clear moment where uh, I believe it's Ben Schwartz is basically like, oh, there's this thing behind this door. Why is it locked? We need to figure out what's inside this door. And then suddenly I could feel like myself uh-huh. lean forward of like, well, it's insane that there's maybe an alien behind this door because we're in a law school and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but I want to know what's behind this door. <laughs> right. And so suddenly I was engaged. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was just an interesting uh, kind of unexpected place to find an examination of story structure at mm. work and when it's when it's working and when it isn't 
in this completely other realm that I feel like you can access from a different place and be laughing the whole time. So Middle Ditch and Schwartz, highly recommend. I I recently went to the Largo Theater. Well, recently, earlier this year, I went to the Largo (laughs) Theater uh, and saw uh, the improvised Shakespeare Company, which was co-founded by Thomas Middle Ditch, where they take a suggestion from the audience and they turn it into an entire hour long Shakespeare play with Shakespearean dialogue and settings Whoa. and characters. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. That that's is impressive. impressive. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's so cool. Well, besides that, Brian, what have you been watching lately? So maybe a little, a little obvious, but uh, I've been watching Some Good News, John Krasinski's Aww. YouTube show. And I think that it's really a beautiful thing um, to exist and I was thinking, again, you, as you talked about, Michael, like watching yourself watching something, like why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? And for anyone who doesn't know, is probably very few of you, but it's just during everything that's going on, Krasinski is in his home shooting himself on an iPhone with a logo made by his kids and uh, and just reporting about cool things that are happening in the world that are good news. And then every episode has like a guest appearance from the cast of Hamilton or Steve Carell or something. So there's always that little element to it, which is fun. But it's like, why am I super engaged for 20 minutes just watching people be happy? I mean, you think, why wouldn't you be? But in screenwriting, we talk so much about conflict. We talk about we're we are excited when things are not right. And then when conflict is resolved, then we're done watching a thing like we don't need to watch it anymore. The dramatic question has been answered. The conflict is resolved. We can move on credits were happy but then i was thinking in recent episodes when harry met sally and butch and sundance i think are two that come to mind we talked about how much we just like watching characters <laughs> enjoy each other and just mm-hmm. be happy and you don't want to watch that for a two and a, like two hour movie i understand but there is whatever chemical we get from conflict we also get a similar conflict chemical from just joy and watching things that are nice and you tell someone about your vacation you're like oh this and this and this and then you kind of inevitably go to well but the only bad thing that happened was this like why do you Mm -hmm. need to tell the bad thing well we need to like inject conflict into this (laughs) slideshow of you know whatever (laughs) um so so it was just it's very refreshing to watch something that celebrates fun and love and joyful situations and i think it's something we can take a lesson from that people do want to watch that because every week it was the number one like trending thing on YouTube. Um, and now it's been picked up by CBS All Access and Krasinski's not going to be the main host. They're probably going to have a budget, which will be weird, but still very much support it as an overall idea and a concept. And I think something that we that we should get behind. Yeah. Awesome. Trisha, what have you been watching? A couple things. I was asked to guest on a couple of different podcasts recently. Um, which should both be out or coming (laughs) out by the time you guys are listening to this. So the first is that I was asked by our buddy Sean Eastridge to come back on Missing Frames, which is his podcast about movies that we should have watched by now. And actually, this time, it wasn't me watching a movie I hadn't seen. It was Sean watching a movie he hadn't seen. And so we watched West Side Story um, from 1961, uh, mainly from our like angle of wanting to talk about Spielberg. Are you trying to, you're clapping? I'm trying to, I'm in my head, I'm singing and I'm trying to get the energy out. (laughs) Snapping is what you should be doing. Well, no, there's the part where they like stomp. Oh. (laughs) They like do a whole thing. That's what I'm doing. Michael is really into this right now, you guys. (laughs) Totally. Um, Anyway, so 
because Spielberg is remaking it. It's in theory coming out. He's making a version of it. It's in theory coming out um, in December this year. And so Sean and I wanted to get into West Side Story. So that was an awesome conversation hearing from Sean, someone who had seen it for the first time. Um, And then I also on Saturday, but it should be coming out quite soon. I'm going to be on Oxide Film, which is an Oxford University film podcast that you, Michael and Alex have been on before. Um, so I'm going to get to go talk about Birdman, um, and Inyaritu, like a little bit more broadly and his career. So I'm very, very excited to chat about that. Um, so I've been rewatching like basically all of Inyaritu's movies, um, which are <laughs> cheery. That's intense. <laughs> fun. A lot of fun. Lots of fun to watch them all back to back to back. But yeah, very, very fascinating. And I can't wait to, to chat to the lovely hosts of Oxide film about that. So um, check those out. Cool. Alex, what have you been watching? I've been checking out uh, Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is, it's a really interesting approach to an anthology series. Uh, I, I should have double checked this, but I heard that essentially the idea for the show spawned from some uh, like European artist who was just doing interesting drawings of mm-hmm. like retro robots in rural settings. <laughs> and somebody took that and was like, I'm inspired to make a show. So the show has a really interesting look it, it all the stories in this kind of anthology series take place in this small rural town somewhere that's in this kind of twilight zone alternate reality kind of retro futuristic tech thing going on uh and the other interesting thing about it is that it's it's not necessarily uh entirely separate stories it's like you'll see a character from the next episode is a, a supporting mm. character in this story but the next episode is like their story. And each episode kind of has its own Twilight Zone spin of like a what if, you know, kind of with this magical retro technology. So it's it's really lovely and it's really be- beautifully shot. Um, it, it sometimes can kind of move too slowly. Uh, it, there's definitely a lot of like, hey, we have really nice cameras and nice music and we're going to really, you know, do that for a while. Kind of Handmaid's Tale <laughs> style. <laughs> But I would say overall, I'm I'm actually really enjoying just the kind of meditative, interesting mood it casts. And I'm curious to see how it all adds up. So I, I do sense that it's like all going to come together by the end. So, yeah, if you're into kind of meditative sci-fi, worth checking out. Nice. Very cool. Well, this has been our conversation about Apocalypse Now. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show, making this possible. We'll see you next time. I think there's only one way that we can all end this episode by saying together the horror the horror, the horror. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you were going to say not going to do it not going to happen the horror I told myself we'd go for see this you experiment you just do things sometimes you, you cut it out sometimes you leave that was his gut brain in. yeah thank you for listening and we'll see you next time bye bye everybody bye bye